Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by Go Native. The legends at Go Native have put together a meal pack especially for our Educated Hunter listeners. This pack contains three of their pre-cooked meal pouches and three servings of mashed potato. You simply just boil them for a couple of minutes to reheat them, add the hot water to the mashed potato and you're good to go. These meals are great because they are high quality, they're tasty and they're very easy to prepare. So you can come back in the dark and within a couple of minutes you can have a high class meal sitting on your plate ready to go. They have also knocked $5 off the price for you, our Educated Hunter listeners. Just follow the link in the show notes or jump onto our website and there's a link there as well. When you get to check out, enter the promo code E-D-U-H-U-N-T-5. Big thanks to Go Native. Hope you take this opportunity to try out a few of their meals. I think once you do, you'll never go back. 2019, here we go. Uh, firstly, I guess, Happy New Year to you all. I uh, hope you had a good Send out of 2018, good and festive. Caught up with a lot of friends and family you maybe hadn't seen in a while and just took some straight out R&R. For the majority of us now, I imagine it's, it's back to work. It can't last forever, but I, I just yeah hope you enjoyed it. Uh, today's conversation, the, you know, the first podcast of 2019, was a cracker. I caught up with Jordan Munn, a young guy, super passionate hunter, if not more passionate conservationist. Yeah, hard to juggle those terms when he's so passionate, but I, I do believe conservation sits a little bit stronger than purely hunting. And we just we talk about a lot of topic. We talk about where it began from the transition to professional work, starting his own business. So so Jordan is Trap and Trigger, uh, which was initially just himself, and now it's a husband and wife team. Dog work, the technology, international work. We cover a lot of topic, and throughout the whole conversation there's such a strong theme about his passion and about his desire to be successful in what he's doing and for the work he does to make a real difference for me it was it was a great conversation and I know the listeners out there are going to believe the same so please just get on have a listen and uh, just enjoy it Uh, I've mentioned in the past and I'll mention it again please anybody that's got any feedback or suggestions for us don't hesitate we well, one, we've got thick skin, but we're, we're an open book too. We'd love to hear any any thoughts, any constructive criticism, just anything as a whole. It's starting, we're starting to get a bit more interaction with the, the group and listeners. So uh, it's, you know, we're, we're going to start making some changes. We've got a lot of podcasting coming up this year. We're, we're away to Reno tomorrow. And so we'll get a lot of, uh, I guess, international input while we're over there. Yeah, but we've also got a lot of New Zealanders guys from culling histories through to current guys to just really strong recreational guys lots lots of good information so so please don't hold back and and getting reaching out to us and, and talking to us uh, and just just enjoy this podcast it's a cracker thanks okay so jordan good to see you thanks for popping in on a wet central Tiger day <laughs> yeah middle of summer it's not uh not the best time actually to be traveling no not ideal and you're you're transiting back up north from Southland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. we're um, we're working in, in Wellington region at the moment, mm-hmm. and we've we still got a handful of stuff down in Southland. So after this Christmas break, 
we're just tracking up north with all our gear, so um, just set up for a bit more, bit more of a permanent setup. Yeah, nothing, nothing quite like that transit. Where did your hunting begin? Um, I've got a funny sort of a beginning. You know, a lot of guys might have had their father who taught them how to hunt or, or something like that. But um, I can remember going out to do some track maintenance for Doc in the middle of Fiordland with my father. I think I was 15, and we took a rifle out there. My dad's, you know, he's always had rifles. He's shot the odd rabbits and possums, you know, as as a child. But we were out on this island, and he's like, oh, we'll take the gun for a walk this morning. And then we get a couple hundred metres up the track, and then he shoots a deer. I was like, wow. Like, it was quite impressed. I was quite impressed. I says, oh, how many deer have you shot now, Dad? He's like, one. <laughs> so I, that was my introduction to hunting. I watched my dad shoot his first deer, and, and I was 15. Um, and it happened to be that same trip to that Resolution Island that same trip when I shot my first deer so he's like the second last day he's like you might as well take the gun for a walk so um, I walked out the, the hut door early in the morning and, and up the cove and I could barely hold this gun up it was an old 308 and yeah just shot on my first stag so a, a kind of a strange introduction to hunting like I wasn't eased into it it kind of all happened at once and um, from that point I was kind of hooked yeah. that's awesome so you're just hearing that, uh, your dad was always sort of involved in the outdoor. Yeah, work yeah, he's a he's an interesting character. He's he's done a few things uh, in terms of, or what you say, conservation. Like he's done a few track cutting um, contracts in his time. So um, he's he's the man on a chainsaw is what he does. So he's a, he's a qualified arborist. Lives in Wellington there. Yeah, no, he's always done like you know bits and pieces outdoors, but he's never been like a, a hunter or a, he's never climbed mountains or gone camping that sort of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, that's quite a uh, into the fire entry, I guess. Yeah. And that's that's where it started for you then? Yeah, and, and so that's where it started. So from there, a few of my friends at school, you know, their parent, their old men did a bit of pig hunting, so I joined Tag along with them, and I picked up my first firearm at 16 and, and shot a couple of deer on my own. Um, and, it, yeah, it just progressed from there to, you know, what, what are we now? We're nine years on from that point. Yep, mm. yeah, you're still a youngster compared to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. And so, so starting with deer, have you ever actually? This is just a question for me. Like, have you ever gone back to shooting? I guess rabbits and like, have you gone backwards in terms of what is a traditional pathway? Does that make sense? Um, I don't know. My my hunting it's always evolving. I'm always something changes. Whether it's a new firearm, you know, I, I want to try it a new caliber or. I want to go try it a new dog or a new gear or a new place. It's always evolving. So I, I wouldn't say like a step backwards to more traditional ways. I just, I think I'm, I like change. Yeah. I'm always looking to change things up a bit. And what's that, what's that brought about by like, do you get, is it a, a new sense of achievement or is it like you, you get bored too quickly? Yeah. <laughs> I think I get bored too quickly. Eh? Yeah. I'm a bit like a stoat. If I don't keep moving, I yeah. go nuts, you know, like I just spent two weeks at my, in-laws this Christmas and um, I reckon I want to pad into the living room going in circles <laughs> run and run and run. trying to be a social person uh, but staring at the hills at the same time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. trying to be social but nobody wants to talk yeah. about hunting so I like I like moving eh? I like you know if I get a spare time I'll go out take the dogs for a run try yep. a new place try something different every time yep. yeah in terms of mentors I guess you, your father was there at the first but then it, it transitioned to sort of just hunting with friends and, and their families is that yeah. where you learnt more from yeah, well, I'm kind of. I'll probably end up skipping ahead a wee bit here. By, I went from, from um, recreational hunting to commercial hunting really fast. So I'd shot. I, I reckon I would have shot four deer in my life, 
and I'd moved from Wellington when I was 16 to Southland to join this possuming crew. So I'd been a possum trapper for two years, and this contractor, he did some some deer contract work in Fiordland, which was on, on island sanctuaries for birds. So every year he'd, he'd have a team of guys that would go out, his more senior guys, because I was only 16, 17. They'd go out and shoot some deer for 10-day runs. So what happened was I'd shoot a handful of deer, but one of the guys in the contract had blown out his shoulder and had to fly out, and he had to finish that contract. And I was the only guy on his team, you know, that had shot a deer, you know, yeah. the next guy down. And so I put my hand up. I was like, this is me. Yep. So I had fight. I was flying in for five days. And um, before I went out there, I just called half a dozen guys that I knew that had done some, you know, a reasonable amount of hunting. I said, what do you think I should do to do well? <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, I was bluffing next? it. I was yeah. absolutely bluffing it. Like I'd, I could shoot straight, but I, I didn't have much idea about hunting. So I just figured out what I had to do, which was to cover the country, increase my chances, and just try and shoot some deer. So I flew out there, and um, Gavin Burgess from Tiano Helicopters flew me out there, and it was just pissing with rain. I just looked like a drowned rat sitting outside this hut as he dropped me off, and, and the older guy flew out. Um, and in five days I shot, oh, I can't remember what it was, like six or seven deer mm-hmm. in the bush, and um, and it sort of put me on a good level. These guys thought I was good, and I yeah. just flew, I just started running around like a maniac. And So from there, you know, I went from recreational hunter four deer to all of a sudden these guys wanted me to do some deer work for them. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of transitioned really fast and, and a lot of my hunting focused around commercial stuff at that stage instead yeah. of recreational stuff. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, listen to that. I wouldn't have said you fluked it because I think there's a a valuable skill set in what you've said there. And, and that's kind of, and we we advocate it to our guys when we're doing the training programs and stuff, is be the very best at whatever rank you're at and then you're first in line to climb a rank. Yeah. And I think that's a skill set that's, Fallen by the wayside a little bit nowadays, and like you say, by being the next best, and even if it was mm. only with four deer, you were the next best. That's so you right. get the call up, and then you get your opportunity, and then you took the other, I guess, educated step by making sure you'd reached out for help. Like you didn't let your ego get involved. You weren't all of a sudden a yeah. commercial color. You were like, "Hey, I need help, so I'll ring yeah. some people," and you know, and that led to arguably a successful trip. So I, I would mm. say there's a lot more than there than just a fluke. So mm. that's good. And so now. And I know this will cover a few topics, but now you are trap and trigger. You are your own business company, and and it's all commercial work. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> the real world stuff. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it, it's like I said, it's nine years. It's been a long process, but you know, I I got heavily involved with got those contractors after that point doing deer work annually, but not a hang of a lot. Maybe thirty percent of the year. And um, from that point, I become self-employed as a sole trader. So I thought, well, I like this work, but I want to take a step sideways and and kind of run my own little ship, which um, had some benefits of the contract as well. It meant that they had a bit of flexibility to call me in and call me out. So um, you set myself up, GST registered, and put the word out there to a few guys and, and started doing a bit more traveling to pick up some more hunting work. And that went really well. And then I married my wife three years ago and uh, there was still a hang of a lot of work ahead of us so we're like we may as well make this a company so step from sole trader to company and sort of commercialise things a little bit more and it's just it's just keep sort of snowballing forwards really so you know commercial hunting uh, or shooting is just a portion of what yeah, we do yeah. Yeah, you know we we do um, you know we still do things like track cutting and, and, and stoke trapping and possum work mm-hmm. and um, it's quite diverse and even a fair bit of guiding as well now so um, we've got a diverse sort of range of services, but um, 
commercial hunting's where it kicked off, and it's kind of yeah. it's the core of what we do. Well, the core of passion. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You've got to do all the other bits. I think that's a, that's sort of the reality. Once you become a business owner, uh, you've got to do the other bits as well. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that matters. So, a question for you then. You know, going from, I guess, a recreational hunter that didn't have a massive history in, in, in hunting to then being a professional in terms of contracting. Like, what sort of conflicts did you have within yourself, you know? To be honest, I started off with not many conflicts because I was just a young guy, didn't know a hang of a lot of people, and I was just stoked to be out there you know hunting for for money that's what mm-hmm. i was i thought was it was amazing i was like cool this is great so i'd yeah. just go out there and I'd do it without even thinking about any sort of moral hunting aspects um and it, then it it actually kind of dawned on me a little bit when i started i decided i i was putting up hunting pictures on my facebook page and my fam- family and friends don't want to see that half of them are old people mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a, i thought it doesn't really get appreciated the way i see it so mm-hmm. i decided to start the trap and trigger page on facebook and it was on there where all of a sudden what I thought was great had some backlash by other people. So, yeah, it took me a while to really realise that there was actually a conflict between what I was doing and recreational hunting as well. And mainly through social media because everyone gets an opinion on social yep. media. Um, a lot of it was an uneducated opinion, but, you know, that really taught me that, hang on, you know, there is there is a lot of people that disagree and do agree with what we do. So I have to make sure I tread carefully and take good moral decisions. Yeah, exactly, and it's you know something I've experienced in the past and still experience now. With even even the likes of this podcast, I get a lot of negative hate about this because I'm potentially raising issues that we shouldn't talk about. <laughs> it's kind of confusing. Sweep it under the rug. Yeah, exactly. It's way easier to do, but I and I, I I definitely agree that social media allows for people to raise an opinion with, without a lot of thought, but also with without limitation on bravery. Like yeah. I've never really had anybody come to me in person and tell me how they felt. That's right. But they'll yeah. definitely do it on social media. And, and a lot of it's all hearsay and so forth. So it's, like like you said, uneducated. So yeah. I, I watched um, sort of, I guess, on social media, you, you cop a little bit of flack around, I guess, a technolo- technology advancement, in particular the, the thermal, the TAD. Yeah. So run us run me through, I guess, run me through what the device does and, and why... There yeah. was a need for it, but then also run me through how you felt personally about the attacks. Yeah, I'm going to take us a couple of steps back quickly to um, that conflict which mm-hmm. draws into this. So I realized on social media that there were right and wrongs and hunters' views as opposed to what I thought was right and wrong as a professional hunter. So that's when I really started looking into the purpose behind what some of these guys were calling me in to do. So. Secretary Island deer eradication, for example, it's it's the biggest deer eradication we've done in New Zealand, and it's loaded with a hope of you know named uh, native endemic species. So, I really started to take a lot more pride in the successful projects that actually mean something. You know, we mm-hmm. we're putting takahe out there now, and it's quite likely to be kakapo out there soon. And so, I really had to find their meaning to do the job. And so now, as a bit more maturity, I'm kind of I'm driven by those projects that actually have a good purpose I don't want to go and shoot 200 deer in a place for for a, a, an industry and then come back and shoot another 200 deer the next year and then the next year and say that I'm doing something because I'm not you know so I really like to chase those those operations that actually have a have a core meaning and, and, and are going to be successful and so based off that I I've now grown into this 
hunt uh, this passion for hunting and conservation. So I understand both aspects. That Secretary Island I mentioned about, that was a it's a hang of an island, and I was only there for the tail end of it. And I don't even know if I shot a deer on it. You know, I, I showed up when there was like 10 deer left and then the helicopter shot a few and we did all this team hunting. But um, it was a massive project and it cost, it cost a lot of money to get those last few deer to, to call it a successful permanent eradication from a defined area. And there was there was GIS analysis and D, DNA analysis, a hope of stuff that went in to secure this project, make sure that it's a long-lasting project. But in the pipeline, they're looking at things like trying to contain wallabies to, to an area in New Zealand, not having them spread out throughout New mm-hmm. Zealand. Um, you know, the Orkney Islands that they want to turn into a nice big eco-sanctuary. And I'm thinking, well, if we're serious about this conservation stuff, we can't just go and throw 50 hunters on Orkney Islands and leave them there. It's, it's 50-something thousand hectares, and we could we struggled to do 8,000 hectares of Secretary Island, which was steep terrain. So I was thinking, well, if I'm going to be part of this industry, how can I kind of try and keep a contribute. foot ahead and contribute and, and and we're looking scale we're not getting smaller we're getting bigger you know our projects are getting bigger so I thought how can I contribute to to these big conservation projects with my skill set so that's where the thermal imaging come into play there's a few guys around the world that do it and a guy in Australia that visits New Zealand quite often and I sort of I kind of seen what they do and I thought I could make it better so I, I um what I did was I found and scratched up as much money as I could find uh bought the best thermal imager with that money and then tried to take out all the limitations that everyone else had. So it needs to be mobile. So attaching it to a helicopter is a pain in the ass. Civil aviation, yeah, it takes months mm-hmm. to get certification. So I wanted it to be strapped to me and no no components touching the helicopter, which meant that we could go from a helicopter um, job to a search and rescue to a firefighting job without having to certify with different helicopter companies. Um, so being mobile... You know, field of view, so having a big field of view, being able to look out the door behind the helicopter and in front of it without being attached to my camera physically. So you get a recreational thermal monocular, you've got to put your eye up to it, whereas the system I created, you can throw the hand around outside the door, but you're sitting in the front seat like a passenger, and you can just, you know, you right. can view the screen in front of you. So uh, I worked on a whole heap of limitations, and, and what it's enabled us to do is to just survey a vast amount of area, whether we're surveying for, for animals, whether we're counting, whether it's removal, eradication, just assist. Um, there's a lot of money spent in conservation on helicopters already, just conventional helicopter hunting. And so we're just an extra component. It doesn't actually cost a hang of a lot. It's peanuts compared to what it costs to run a helicopter to get us to sit in the door and increase the detection rate. So that's been a great project, and, and it's enabled us to do a lot, a lot in New Zealand. So it's pretty cool. That's oh, really cool. And it's good to see... Well, you know, like a, my advocacy for entrepreneurship. Like, it's good to see a young guy think, hey, I'm going to have a crack at doing something. I'm going to contribute to what it is I'm passionate about in industry mm-hmm. and and bring that to life. But so so that, that said, and the result of that is a good bit of technology that is, is capable of doing a good job and, and, you know, likely to be used. But then you personally copped it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I saw it and I was just cringing for you you know i didn't know you then i don't yeah. really know you now but yeah i was cringing for you because well i mean the comments i saw were why are you killing our pigs on our back doorstep basically yeah uh, it was, and <laughs> yeah it was it was a funny time like i it i i have to hide it for, I, especially my wife like she's the loveliest person and i don't want to bring any of this on her so i would hide it and i'd try and cover it up but at the same time i'm my own worst enemy because I 100% stand up for the jobs that I do. I don't do it unless it's justified. 
and there's a, this huge thing in in the commercial hunting industry and in, in, in New Zealand in particular where you know not many people know many colors in New Zealand because they like to try and detach themselves from recreational hunting sweep the work they're doing under the rug and just fly under the radar it's easy that way super easy but I, I, I think I carry too much self-pride I just want I want it to be justified like I, I think it's justified so I'm prepared to stand up for what I do so if I've been called somewhere by say a local iwi to do a deer job and um, people are against that because they might shoot deer in that area well I have a look at the aspects of why we're doing it what the forest health is like who's actually employing us and, and I'm happy to stand up for those rights and that's why we do it so um, I put that I put some videos on social media about what we were doing and people took it as a huge threat to recreational hunting they thought that I would enable people like um, Doc to eradicate entire species from New Zealand or, or whatever it might be and that's just their their views and, and there's some uneducated views there but um, at the same time they had some valid concept mm-hmm. because I did have a tool which could be misused if possible but I just had to try and stand up for recreational hunters because I'm part of the recreational hunter community and, and, and I really enjoy it. But I just wanted to make sure that I didn't fall back because people didn't like it. And um, yeah, no, it, was a, it was a bit of a scary time. But I think I, I tried to stand up for myself at the same time. Oh. But um, yeah, it did make me settle a lot as well. So you know, the last sort of six months on social media, I've really been quite settled. I can't, you know, I, I'm quite cautious about what I put out there yep. now just simply because of what the backlash might be whether they understand or not mm-hmm. I mean that's a shame too yeah um, but it's also a good bit of learning you know like I think it's the kind of learning that all hunters need not commercial not you know like just hunters as a whole we all need to probably take that little bit of reflection sit back and think about should I put this on social media mm. you know and I've raised it in other podcasts like I think you know we need to definitely tread with caution there and I see it on a lot of these Facebook groups now they're either posts aren't getting shared or they're getting removed or when conflict comes up it gets removed and I, I, I could argue that they're doing it for the right reasons but they're doing it because it impacts the the pages and stuff so yeah so it is you know it is a good thing you know you touched on like the uneducated view and you know I, I sit loosely in the same camp as you recreational and uh, commercial hunter it's it's a difficult one to advocate because I get it my recreational friends they can't see the truth of what I'm doing all the time and yeah. and vice versa. But how do you think as an industry, and I'm not talking purely trap and trigger like Department of Conservation, Osprey, all those that are trying to work to a bigger picture, like do we need to communicate more? Do we need to communicate better? Do we need to evolve more? Like it's threatening. That's the trouble. Yeah. Like you've got to be pretty brave to even suggest that you're going to do something, let alone, yeah, that's right. let alone try and organize and talk. I think a part of it is just, it doesn't matter. I, there's a saying that an old guy told me. He said, to every every action is a reaction. It doesn't matter how educated people are. If something's going to happen, there's always going to be some form of reaction. You know, you're never going to have 100% of people on side. So being prepared for that is one thing. Is, is you know, w- what kind of friction are we going to get, you know, with this project? And how do we, you know, make that socio-political environment better? You know, what do we need? Do we need to educate these people? Do we need to show them something? Or can we compromise? So I think being prepared is a big one. Um, and I see it a lot in big projects at the moment that before anything's engaged now, there's so much consultation happening. It's just, it's getting, mm. you know, it's getting out of hand where there's so many people getting getting reached out to talk to and then the, the projects are stalled and stalled and stalled yeah, to try and make everyone it. happy. But being prepared is one thing. So 
I don't as long as I live and put something on social media, I'm probably going to get somebody who doesn't quite understand. Mm-hmm. Another thing is there's quite a few people, like the recreational hunting community, is quite a few people cooped up in their own little world. So the value of a deer, for example, in, in the Tiruera, where they're a little bit harder to find, you know, they're, mo- they're highly valued as a resource for eating, is a lot different to deer in a mob of 100 down on the South Otago farm where they're destroying it. And it's, people just have to understand that people have different values and you have to accept someone's values. And it, it's you, sometimes it's hard to comprehend, but you've got to put yourself in their place or their environment to understand it. You know, somebody who sees big trophies in the South Island and then sees somebody that calls it a trophy in the North Island, they're completely different sometimes. Yep, and different. people just have to understand that people's, you know, look on hunting might be completely different because of where they are, the way they were brought up, and it's just something you have to accept. People don't mind shooting velvetes. Well, that's their choice. They might have hundreds of them running around. And, yep. and it's not about letting every hunter in there to shoot them because they think they're of value. It just depends where you are and what you're into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think, to, yeah, to summarise that, it's really about people and hunters as a whole, but the community just just being willing to accept something different. Yeah, We kind of believe that what we know is right. Mm. when there's there's a whole lot of variation on that but um one thing i wanted to talk to you about because obviously um as people know i do a bit with the dogs is you and again based on what i've seen on social media yeah uh, do a bit with the dogs in different forms so you use the dogs for pigs yeah so that's another evolving snowball <laughs> you've just opened up a can of worms but when you commit there's pretty much no commercial hunters in new zealand that work without a dog you kind of You've got to have a dog if you want to be, you know, working doing deer culling in the bush or goat culling in the bush or, you know, it's just, it's the key asset, you know, and you're as good as your dog. So mm-hmm. when I started that deer work, I was almost forced into, if I want to do this, I need to get a dog. So I, the boss had a nice visitor I seen at work and I thought, cool, I'll grab one of them, pick one up from Tuatapri. <laughs> Easy. And, um, <clears throat> and I just set it up to win. But, um, so that started, that all of a sudden that started my dog thing. So I, I picked up this visitor called Mia when I was 16. Me and she's probably yeah eight or nine now, um, and I was always driven to take her out and shoot deer, whether it was to enhance my commercial ability or or just my recreational ability. So, I I I think I I cracked it a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's a combination of getting the right dog, you know, having luck with having the right dog, and then being able to train it as well. But I think I had a really good dog, and I set it up well, and I put in some hard work to get her running, and um, she's just she's an amazing pointer. Like she'll. You know, deer, pigs, and goats is what we focus her on, and she, you know, she'll pick them up and she'll let you know when they're close. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she just got all the right, all the right aspects that you need for a good point, a good bush pointer. So um, that started, and then a bit of commercial pig work come up, and so we're like, right, let's get into pig hunting. I'd done a bit of pig hunting with friends. I thought, let's do this, and um, with a little bit of dog experience from pointing and that, and and some goat work, I picked up a couple of young pups and and trained them up, and the same thing, snowball effect. They I like taking them out to do the work and then in my spare time I'll take every second I can to get the next pup going yeah, the next yeah, pup yeah. going and, and just keep progressing so I've got this thing for dogs I don't know what it is but I just I can't get enough of getting dogs running yeah mm-hmm. getting and I out. think I think based on my experience and listening to your talk the guys that naturally have it with dogs naturally have it mm-hmm. and, and not everybody does like some guys you see them just flogging a dead horse and it's part yeah. of, it's their relationship with them and the dog yeah. like it just isn't a mix um, and then you see some guys just seem to have this fluke ability to get gems from, <laughs> yeah, from anywhere, you know. And I, I think, I think that's sort of something that 
just can't be recreated. You know. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, um, but time, time and effort. Yeah, time and effort's uh, a huge is one. And the founder of it. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people ask me, "How do you get it to do something?" And all I can say is just be consistent and put the time and effort. In it. It's not going to learn on its own. But I think I've I've been a bit lucky because I've been forced into that commercial aspect of hunting. I I've had to have quite high standard dogs, so we're always in public places on on in national parks around birds and on boats and in helicopters and, and there's such a variation in, at different people's houses and staying at accommodation. So I've had no choice but to have dogs that that listen when they're told you know they don't you know that they're, they're super toilet training you know because they they spend half their time in the back of the ute they're um you know they're in helicopters and they're around people in the public and so they've, they've actually been quite disciplined so i've been forced to make sure that they're disciplined dogs and that they you know that they target specific they do what they're meant to do and I, I suppose that commercial aspect has helped me kind of you know shape them into really sharp dogs over time mm. yeah so how often like Obviously, contracts come and go, but like if you were just to recreationally pig hunt, how often would you be out? <laughs> yeah, it, it varies depending on where we are and what we're doing. But you know, the last six months of 2018, I was out two or three times a week mm-hmm. recreational pig hunting. You know, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd knock off work at four o'clock or whatever, and and I'd text my brother who, who runs a cow and I'd say, pig hunt, and he'd say yes, and yeah. then I'd say, where and he'd say how about here and so we're bang we're like he gets home early i get home and we're gone yeah and we're and because we're in the wellington region there's a surprising amount of pigs there's probably the shittest bush in new zealand but there's quite a few pigs around and they're handy so we figured out a few good spots and we were just able to go and catch a pig after work quite quickly so Mm. um yeah we've been quite driven by having handy pigs and um we would get out at least two or three times a week for a long long time and it's good for the dogs to have success like it's hard to it's hard to get a dog really firing when they're not 100% sure what it is they're supposed to be firing on. Yeah, that's like, right. You know, I feel sorry for some guys. Like, I have, um, I guess, good access as well. Yeah. And um, But there's some guys just uh, just out there flogging. They're, they're arguably more passionate than I am because <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing it without the rewards. <laughs> yeah. And I just think, oh, that's determination. But, yeah. Um, but definitely, definitely need the rewards. But they get, you know, those guys, at least when – they have a successful hunt. It may be fewer successful hunts. At least the reward is greater. Reward's to higher. You know, yeah, it's yeah. higher. Yeah, yeah. but you know, we we started our pig dogs with no public, uh, with no private access. So, Jackson and I, Jackson's my younger brother. We we had a dog each. We as pups, and they we pretty much we weren't worried about where they come from. We just looked at the breed. We thought, yep, looks like an alright breed. It's got a couple of traits that we liked, which was um, better collie, um, greyhound or, or, or whippet, and. We picked these two pups up and we just started marching through conservation land where we knew where their pigs were. But, you know, publicly hunting, we were just marching through it. We picked up this this pig dog who um who was half us and it would it chased deer and stuff and it wasn't a good start, but it yeah. caught us like a handful of pigs. So, you know, being a commercial hunter, I still had to start from start from scratch mm-hmm. and we we did a lot of miles in conservation land to get those pups running. And um and then it grew from there when a little bit of work flowed and things progressed. What I found interesting was that we decided that the two dogs we had, that we could now split them, run one each, and have a pup each. So we've done that, but with with experienced dogs now and all the pig hunting that we get, some of those pups have been average. We're like, well, what have we done wrong? You know, we've showed them more pigs than ever. So, you know, sometimes starting from scratch can be the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I think it's, then the, then the next stage is, without sounding really ruthless, is, is purely a numbers game. Like, yeah. not every pup is going to do it. And then it's a case of picking that up early, mm. or believing you picked it up. It's not always yeah. right, and and making sure 
you're investing your time and energy into something that's going to get there. Yeah, that's right. And it's not easy, but um, and you don't get it right all the mm. time, but it's um, it's hard. So, so and then versus your deer dogs, do they do they work as often? Like, if, obviously, if you're picking them three days a week, you're running, you're running out of days. <laughs> yeah. Like, is it because she's a wee bit older now that you can, I guess, yeah. not run as um, regular? You know, the, the, the pointing and, and then the, the chasing dogs, they're, they're such a world apart. You know, a, a chasing dog, because I'm talking maybe goats, it might be yep. a wallaby flush or it could be a um, pig dog, but those sort of dogs, they need they need to have that reward, you know, to keep them fresh. They need to be fit and they've got to, they've got to work as a team and they've got to progress sort of thing. So they, they really need that maintenance. But a, my deer dog, um, I've had two indicators, um, but my main deer dog, once she learned how to point and I had those basic commands on her, I can take her out in the bush, you know, six months without working. Not that mm-hmm. I've done that long a stretch, but yeah. she'd do the exact same thing. Mm. She'd, she'd have the same commands and she'd work just as she would six months ago after a 10-day trip yeah, in the right. bush. You know, there's, they don't need to be fit. They just need to sniff the ear. They just yeah, need yeah. to sniff the ear and listen. Yeah. And so as long as they can listen, they're fine. Um, mm. Yeah, so the, the, the point is that it's a little bit easier. Um, I had this indicator baler, which was a combination of two. So it would, uh, I, I mainly use it for goat work. So it would point goats, and then if one escaped, you could send it away to catch the last one. So she could she could point, and, and she'd do it on deer as well. But um, she was an awesome dog, but took a little bit more maintenance. And she wasn't that, she was a jack of all trades, master none. She wasn't the best pointer, but she wasn't the best baler either compared to both sides. So um, she was pretty cool. But I actually lost her in the Wanganui National Park about, or two years ago maybe she broke her leg and it was a irreversible sort of an injury so yep. that sucked so mm. picked up another pup uh, this Christmas so hopefully another it, champion yeah another cha- another jack <laughs> of all trades yeah, hopefully. yeah yeah no it is um, it's actually something I think like a transition that I see for my future once I give up the the pig dogs is to probably go to an indicating dog and and, and I think it's a sort of a trend that I see a lot on social media I don't mm. know if it's a being portrayed that well onto the hill but on social media it definitely appears that there's a massive interest in guys running dogs now yeah and i think with all that all the department of conservation land that's out there all the deer that are out there on that land mm. like there's a lot of opportunity for guys to go and to go and, and, and use their dog you know whereas right. we start picking now like you get a lot of conservation land but like down here there's a lot of conservation land that needs a bit of access through farmland and it's yeah. The dogs can be a real limit, or the pig dogs, per definition, can be a real limitation on that. Yeah, Whereas for sure. Hunting with deer, I sort of think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Mm. And and I think the deer numbers at the moment are quite scary. It seems everywhere I go, there's increasing deer numbers, whether it's private land or public land. Um, you know, in cities as well, places like Wellington and in and, and, and different areas, you notice that they're getting a bit more habitualized to people mm. and showing up around the roads a lot more. Um, small reserves and council reserves. There seems to be a growing focus around these deer showing up in places where they usually wouldn't. And and it's a combination of, um, you know, just not being able to shoot deer, but people har- harbouring them, so small yeah, landowners who like to see them and just leaving them there. You know, they're happy to yep. see them, but they don't realise that over time their population grows. Yeah, like, and I, I grew up with it, really, because there was, I guess when I was a young hunter, not that, geez, I'm making my sound sound real <laughs> old, but a younger hunter. So when I was starting out, deer numbers were quite low. Yeah. So if you were, say, picking on a private property and, and you mentioned about the deer, they were like, oh, yeah, but don't shoot any females. Yeah. Only shoot a spiker or whatever. There was some sort of limitation mm. on what you did, which was probably a good thing based on the number of deer there now. Yeah. But the reality is that that's transitioned now. Now we need to start shooting some hinds in particular. Yeah. 
and it's it's awesome to see and it's good that people like to see them and so forth but the reality is now what needs to happen is they need to be managed and that mm. means harvesting some yeah yeah it's, and like we said before this only can apply to particular areas there's still places where there are highly valued or in thinner numbers just naturally or or due to hunting pressure but um yeah, some places, especially down here in the southern South Island, man, I've seen some deer in the last few weeks just walking around and, and looking for chamois. I think I've seen mobs and mobs of deer, so it's it is a little bit scary. But um, there will be, you know, times change. People will be aware of it, and there'll be some sort of a management plan, or people mm-hmm. will become aware and start shooting a few more. You know, we were talking about the the deer dogs, and I think there has been an increase in that because people are becoming more successful as well you know gps have enabled people to go further you know thermal imaging might be taking a few of the easy ones uh, or spotlighting and and so forth so maybe that's why there's been a shift to deer dogs from a few people because all of a sudden they don't have to sit in a clearing one night they can go for a walk in the back and try mm-hmm. and find a deer a bit mm. easier yeah that's probably true getting them beyond well just a little bit further out because the easy mm. deer are, are being accounted for with different means that's good. and so so now that we've brought that technology thing up the how do you feel about thermal? Like we're talking about thermal imaging from a commercial aspect, so I'm not talking about that. Yeah. But as a recreational hunter, how does the thermal imaging sit with you? And I know it's a cross conflict. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not getting you to preach in one corner or the other. Yeah, but. yeah. I don't want to be too judgmental, yeah. um, because like we've said, everyone's got an opinion. It might be an uneducated opinion. So, I think that there is room for thermal imaging in the right places. Whether yeah. I, I'm not too sure where this could go. You know, I use a dog. People, some people think dogs almost cheating, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking like, come on, it's the best tool there is. And so the person who needs a thermal imager to find a deer, maybe that's their only tool to mm-hmm. be successful. That's true. So, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. It, I think it, it's a scary thing because it has got the ability to wreck a few places. Thermal imaging mm-hmm. definitely got the the ability to wreck a few places. So. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, but I, I'm not too worried about people. I, like, I've got a thermal image and I use it for a different purpose. I have but found myself guilty of using it, you know, if I have to. You know, mm. pulling up on the side of the road and being, oh, there's a deer up there. Hey. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a politically sensitive topic, that one, and I can understand people that think it's a bit, um, it's a shortcut, and it definitely is a shortcut. You know, we're using a lot of things at the moment to enable our ability to hunt, whether, you like I said, tracking gear and, and gps's you know like a, a, a led torch that you can fit in your pack and you can shine on the clearing you know when you get to your hut sort of thing so it, i think it just depends on what people are hunting why they need to use it mm. um you know like if they're using a thermal imager to and they see 30 deer well it doesn't matter if they shoot to but if they're using the thermal imager to find the last deer on the clearing then it's a different story yeah yeah i don't know like personal thing like for me it doesn't sit well with me regression mm. and and i know i the, the point you raised about you use a dog or tracking and stuff and i that was very valid i hadn't i guess put much thought into that but then I, as soon as i heard that i was like yeah but not everybody's good with dogs and there's a variation with every dog and i guess what what gets me with the thermal stuff is you could literally have brought your or not brought but set your firearms license Go in there and buy a gun and a thermal imager, yeah, and right. start with shooting stuff. And I, I, I and I, I can't argue the point. That's still right if that's what you want to do and that's where your personal boundary sits, and that's fine. But for me, I, I have a wee bit of a hard time with it. Yeah, no, and and I think, I think it's, a, it's that, that position is valid down here in this open country where thermal imaging can find every every animal in the gully potentially as well. So I think that's a bit more valid down here. Um, and and another thing is that. Some you know somebody who's got a bit more money 
has benefited from that. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a privilege, a privilege to have a thermal imager because they can afford it. Whereas mm-hmm. there's a lot of young guys out there or people out there that don't have that Slide privilege away of money. With the yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that that does sit a bit uneasy with me at times. But I've sat on that end of being judged because of what I do or why I do it. So I I try not to look too far into it because at the end of the day, it's out of my control. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, one thing we haven't really discussed, and I, I guess we got close to it then when we talked about you know, like large populations and so forth. And, and nowadays when, if you're privileged enough in any form to be out in a helicopter or, or to climb, you know, get some good elevation, you are seeing a lot of deer, mm. you know. And I, I think, you know, we as hunters now probably need to change a little bit of what we're doing. And I would hope that the change was always resourceful and ethical, you know, like we were still always using the meat and yeah. taking that out. But, but perhaps we probably need to start shifting and being like, well, it's okay for me to shoot a hind now, and it's okay for me. Not not while it's got a dependent or anything like that, but you know, like I, a lot of the people, like especially down around this region, you still talk to them and like, oh, you shoot a hind, yeah. It's like yeah, I did, but it was one of twenty four <laughs> I saw for the weekend or whatever. Right. You know, like I just think there needs to be a little shift in that. And then, and then arguably there is like that. My that comment is based on what I know regionally around here. Yeah, um, so many variables is the issue. Um, I think that. You know, I, I shot a deer the other day because I seen like 30 deer and it was the skinniest deer I seen. I thought, well, my dog's done an amazing job. There's no shortage of deer in here. There's just a shitload. So I shot a deer and I took stuff all off it. And I felt, I should I feel guilty or not? Because at the end of the day, if these populations grow and grow and grow to the point where they cause serious damage to whatever park they might be in or they start incurring on private land, that, that's when action gets taken and they get removed by well, the and, and, and like you say, the deer was skinny as itself. Like they start impacting on themselves. Themselves. Well. No one wants to shoot skinny deer. So, you know, people might not encounter this in parts of New Zealand, but it, it is happening around. And I think that we, we're far too judgmental about each other because so many people go out and shoot a goat, but goat meat is one of the most, or is the highest consumed meat in the world. And it's so highly valued everywhere else. But New Zealanders don't care when each other hunter shoots them and leaves them and mm-hmm. turns it into a pig dump or just leaves it. So, why can't we have that same mindset with deer in places where the, the population the is too is high? There. You know, if you can go out and you can see a lot of deer consistently, well then, why can't you shoot a deer and think, well, I might take a back strap because I'm fried up for lunch, but it, it does not going to harm the population, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, and and the other thing is that deer will still give back to the environment some way or another, whether it's feeding bugs and feeding birds. It's not completely wasted. It's growing up in the environment and then it and it decomposes in the same environment mm-hmm. um so i think it's about just being a little bit open-minded but having some respect for other people and different different predicaments mm-hmm. and then you're obviously successful now moving back up to well, the north island to dive into some more work get bigger have you done anything internationally yeah i've, do, I've done a couple of projects internationally um and and it's through just through the industry that I was in a few people that, that were able to obtain overseas contracts. One was a sheep eradication, the first one in two thousand fifteen, a sheep eradication on Guana Island in the Caribbean. So um, it's quite funny because you think sheep, ha, mm. easy sheep. So there's this, this eight hundred acre island uh, in the middle of the Caribbean by the British Virgin Islands, and it was owned by a private um, philanthropist, and it was recognised as one of the highest. Biodiversity resources in the world. It, it was one of the last strongholds of the guana. It's called Guana mm-hmm. Island, and these guana, these giant big lizards, and um, they were being forced to climb the trees to, because these introduced sheep from 150 years ago were just destroying 
everything up to you know chest height. Mm-hmm. So um, action was taken to remove these goat uh, these sheep completely. So I was flown over there with uh, with four other hunters, and um, we had a month to get around this island, kill every single sheep that was on the island. Um, and we thought it was going to be easy because we see sheep here, we think easy. But uh, we got there, these things were like goats. They stunk like goats. They had fur like goats. And they lived in the bush and in caves like goats. It was crazy. So um, we were picking our way through cactuses and shooting these sheep for um, for a month. And it was it was actually it was probably one of my highlights. You know, it was mm. we were on this five star luxury resort, getting <laughs> so fed, you had the good bits getting, as well, yeah. yeah, getting fed by the right people. And because it was so freaking hot, we were using indicator balers. So we'd we'd use these indicator balers specifically so that we could sneak up on mobs and dispatch the mob without chasing one at a time. And then later on in the project, we could send the dog away on sign to catch individuals. So that was about shortcutting the process and not educating animals while we were doing the operation. So, you know, it was so hot that we had to run these dogs from like four till midday. And so we had from midday onwards to go surfing or to drink beer or to sit on the beach. <laughs> Poor you. This, but it was, yeah. it was great fun. And um, I really enjoyed it. And it was successful. So, you know, it's 2019 now and they haven't, there's been no goats detected since. Sure. No sheep detected since. So um, that was awesome. Now, a lot of logistics, a lot of politics, but um, cool job. And then another one was 2017. Um, same thing in New Zealand. I obtained uh, a contract to remove the deer off an island in Canada, um, off the coast of British Columbia, and it's a place called um, Haida Gwaii. So the Haida Gwaii National Park, and in that national park is an island called Ramsey Island. It's about two and a half thousand acres, I think, if I'm correct. I might be wrong, but... So yeah, we got flown out there with our indicator dogs and some chasing dogs, and um, we lived on a big house barge. We did a fair bit of aerial shooting and a fair bit of ground shooting, and, and we chipped away at that for, oh, I can't remember, it might have been two months or three months over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a cool project, just seeing a different part of the world. But people are like, wow, like such a great experience. But at the same time, you know, we were just, we flew straight there, we're on a boat, we're on a helicopter, we're on the island, Start and we work. just stuck there, and we yeah. just worked day in and day out. I mean, you learn a lot. It's great to see other parts, but we didn't get to go sightseeing. Yep. We were there to work, and um, yeah, that was a cool project. We, we that's where thermal imaging. You know, we we use thermal imaging. It kind of just happened that there was a thermal imager on the project, and that all these deer were coming down to the coast at night. So we would do laps during the middle of the night around the island on the boat and and spot these deer with the thermal imager, and then we'd have to either get to a position where you could shoot them off the boat or off the rock. So that there was the eye for thermal imaging for me and what potential we could use it to, to create some great island conservation in New Zealand. Mm. Mm. You touched on there educating animals in terms of if they get chased and they learn from that. I've never really talked about it on the podcast before. I know a little bit of it. But how, like, explain that. Um, explain that to the listeners. Yeah, so... Uh, it's funny because in the industry, the the word eradication gets tossed around a lot. People use the word eradication, but you know, if you, if you're seriously using the word eradication in the conservation industry, you've got to mean it. it's a complete and permanent removal of the entire species. You've got to have a time limited, you know, campaign. You have to have a positive socio political environment that outweighs, you know, the negative. You have to have um, the control. The eradication has to cost benefit over the control mm-hmm. long term mm-hmm. so there's so much thought goes into an eradication and when you approach it you have to be 100% systematic um, you have to do as much as you can to eliminate uh, educating an animal otherwise that one animal or two could fail the project you know some of these eradications can cost can cost millions of dollars um, so you've got to be pretty serious about it uh, they don't go about them lightly anymore so 
Mount Taranaki or Taranaki Maunga, they are looking to finally eradicate goats off Mount Taranaki. It's been the longest lasting goat eradication in the world um, just because it may not have had the right approach and there was an educated population. Um, and though, though that will have trickled down over time to the population that's there now and they're harder than ever to get. Same with um, that Secretary Island we talked about. You know, that took 10 years to kind of get towards the last year or more. And then the last approach was like, we've got to do this properly or we'll never get it. We'll never achieve it. You know, they were for a period of years, they were shooting the repopulation rate mm-hmm. just by sporadic uh, hunting efforts, uh, uh, you know, of individual hunters. And then they're like, let's do this properly. So they combined hunting into team hunting and surveying and DNA analysis and a whole heap of stuff to find out where these deer were. And, and you know, if we we're going to encounter them, we wanted to kill them. We didn't want them to run off and then be smart to dogs or smart to boats mm. or helicopters. So, yeah, with, with big eradications, education's a huge one. Um, mm. That's one thing you've got to avoid is having smart animals. Otherwise, you know, it can cost a fortune. Yeah, definitely. I, and like, it was a really good insight. But my little my little reference to that is when you hunt areas where you know guys have chased pigs. Like you certainly know when you yeah. dogs get onto a pig that's had its own way for a long time. Uh, definitely a different beast. Yeah, yeah. They they seem to pick up some tricks. You know, they learn how to shake a dog or how to or yeah. lose it yeah. or to beat how it early to get going. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They know what they sound like. So. Yeah, that's it's a it is a key one. Your education. Oh, awesome. So for a guy that's arguably in the bush, on the mountains, in the outdoors all the time, what what you know, quality gear is quality gear. I, I fully get that. But what what would be your pick of quality gear? Oh, I don't know. I'm 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 a funny guy. I can get away. I, I could I can run off the smell of an oily rag. I'm would There's be not much one. To you. Would be one with it. Yeah, that's right. I'm zero percent body fat. So. What I mean by that is, yeah, I, I'm not, and you know, I wear bullets. I still wear bullets, which are the rubber lace-up gumboots. People look at me and cringe, but I've had no issues in eight, nine years with bullets. Um, whereas some people won't, will never look back from a pair of 600 leather boots, which I keep reeking in five or six months. Um, it's same with clothing. Like, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have any particular brands as long as, you know, if it doesn't it last, as long as it kind of works. Um, it's so costly when you're doing it every day of the year. You know, you choose your mm. gear. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I guess I just take what I can get and and yeah. work away with it. Some things work better than others, and it's just a process of not going back. But I don't have any particular gear that I have to use. Yeah, no, mm. I'm much the same, and, and partly through being lazy too, because I don't look after stuff enough. <laughs> yeah. Like, it would be a poor investment for me to spend a lot of money on some clothing and not wash it. Yeah, like, that's right. You must have your one ticket item that goes with you everywhere. Oh. Uh, mm. That's a tricky one. Not really, no. no. Um, it depends what you're thinking about. If you're thinking about safety, mm-hmm. the one ticket item would be an EPIRB or or an inReach, same thing. Yeah. Um, only because I've been in a few predicaments where I, sh- I might have needed it. So I understand the seriousness of those that item which could get you, which could save your life. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about hunting, I reckon, I reckon I've missed my best moments without a camera. Yep. You know, whether it's just a photo, whatever it might be, but... You know, there's so many times that I wish I had a camera. You know, you might have had a gun, but you couldn't shoot it. Mm-hmm. So you should have had a camera. Or, you know, there's something happens where if you had a camera, you'd be like, man, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a camera would be one that sometimes I, I quite often regret that in terms of hunting, you know, because you only need a firearm when you want it or need it. And same with a bow or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But a camera, you can kind of capture anything with a camera yep. and take it back. With yeah, you. and it doesn't have to be hunt or harvest related either because mm. when you're out all the time you see a lot of other stuff that's yeah, like yeah it could be any no relation to what you yeah. pull the trigger on yeah giant waterfalls or 
caves or whatever yeah. you might find. There's always something that, that you wish you had a camera with. No, I definitely agree. And there's obviously guys out there running really good cameras and you can tell the quality, but for me, it's it's as long as it's a camera that you're willing to use. Mm. Like, you know, there's no point in having a really good camera at the bottom of your pack because you're probably going to miss it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, like you say, if a point of shoot on the hip is probably... Yeah, it's right. ugly better for somebody like me. And and these like uh, the iPhone cameras are so amazing. I've lost a few iPhones now because <laughs> I always have it in a pocket on me in the yeah. bush. Always. Oh, I've lost one in the bush, but I've I've lost it a few times and had to battery. But that's my point of that's my go to. Pull yeah. it out, take a picture, take a video. As well as now that I spend half my time working in the bush, but also answering calls and emailing <laughs> at the same time. I spend just as much that's time. That's the reality of life. Sitting down, working in the bush on my phone as I do working properly. Yeah, and what sort of um, what sort of EPUB do you use? Um, shucks, that's a great question. Um, I can't even remember the brand of it. The the little egg shaped one, little yeah, little. I do know the one. Little green yellow oh, egg shaped yeah, one. I use that PLB one too. Yeah, um, but I've just picked up an Inreach a Garmin Inreach. Oh, I yeah. like that. Well, mm-hmm. it, it's it's now a requirement for work to have that mm-hmm. communications that, yeah. that communication there. So, I've used the Inreach a few times just to say you know pick me up later it's too wet or whatever it might be or you know i'm good for the night whatever it might be mm. yeah so, i've i've just got myself in reach and i've yet to really challenge it so i don't know because i've heard mixed results on them oh yeah, yeah. um but my epurb uh is a, is a go-to for me like i've had a couple of back surgeries and a knee surgery and like the intention is to never have any issues but it doesn't take much of an issue to kind of limit you especially if you do a lot on your own yeah that's right um, yeah so i definitely that's yeah. definitely my go-to kit. I sure. think the difference between the two is, is an EPUB's reliable. You know you're always going to be able to pull out and use it. But a Garmin, uh, uh, yeah, so an inReach is always going to go. But a, so I've confused Got myself. Front, yeah. Going back to front. Yeah, so a Garmin inReach, if you don't charge it, it won't work. You know, yeah. So you've got to make sure that you preserve its battery life and that it's good to go when you need it. Mm. Whereas at least you can pull an EPUB out of your pack and it's yeah, going well, to go. It, as long as it's one of that battery life. Yeah. yeah. So that's the pros and cons, I think. Mm. No, they're good little units. And so for Jordan, obviously you've got, I guess, some personal things coming up with the the shift up there. But what's what's in the future for for Jordan or Trap and Trigger? Um, yeah, tricky one. Well, I'd like to know, but um, <laughs> my life is all like my life is such a such a rigmarole that I never know what's around the corner. It seems to be I get you know you have a plan and then something better surprises you and. Like I said, we're extremely diverse. We do a lot of guiding. We do some guiding. We do um, we do small pest management and, and big conservation projects. So I like achieving big conservation projects, um, whether it's you know island eradications or, or or whatever it might be. I I like something that has a long lasting result. So whenever they show up, I've got my eye on them because I'm keen to do so. I'm yeah. keen to be a part of history in some way and and make a difference. Um, so achieving some of them and and quite often doesn't matter who you're, you're only a key role in those projects. Yep. It's never a one-man band. It's always a, a big team of guys. So, yeah, I've got a, there's a few projects coming out that I'm keen to get involved in, 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 you know, with this discussion there. So I think conservation project. I love guiding people, and it's just the same as taking young fella out. The only reason I like guiding is because I get paid to take people hunting, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I just take so much joy out of that. And with our guiding stuff, I don't set it up so that we make – Heap money out of it. In fact, we make less money than all of our pest control stuff. Yeah. In fact, we sometimes, guiding as a whole sometimes we, break, we break even. But yeah. I, there's just something about somebody comes to me and they have they want to get the species, and, and I we figure out the budget and I say, well, this is what we can achieve. And I I think in my mind, what is the best way 
you know, to go find a chamois in New Zealand and get it mm-hmm. with their budget. And then I make, I create the hunt for them, propose it to them, they say, cool. And then you get to go out there on this ideal hunt, which I've kind of balled up because they might not be from New Zealand, and take them out there and to see them successful. Or even, I had one guy who wasn't successful, but it was still one of the best guys I've done. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. So I take a lot of pleasure in showing people New Zealand how, how nice it is and um, how scenic it is and that I, I really try to take them to a place where if the animals aren't there, at least you can still, still look around amazing. and enjoy yourself, yeah. you know, because that's, um, that's the beauty about New Zealand is sometimes you just want to get to the top of the hill to look around, not to glass. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's such a cool place. So how much, oh, how much guiding are you doing? Oh, just uh, a hand, just a handful a year, you know, no more than 10 a year. Mm-hmm. But um, it's increasing probably because we, we, you know, I don't know, it is increasing because we have put a little bit of marketing into it, but yep. I've got to be careful because it it will pull my focus away from, you know, longer term future projects. So, mm. um, I like I I like it. I like to keep that ball rolling and and get out there in the hills as well. It gives mm. me an excuse to get back in the hills as well, instead of stuck in an office or um or running trap lines or something. So, yeah, I, I like the gutting, but I don't want to make it a mainstream thing. I just the opportunity to take just people out bit. is good enough for me. Yeah, well, if you enjoy it, it's, it's always a shame mm. to to turn it down. Something that you yeah. enjoy. Yeah, but that's awesome. I, this has been a really good chat. Really enjoyed it. Cool, cool. Uh, How fast through are we? Almost done, are we? Yeah, I think so. So th- there's one thing that, that it kind of bugs me, and I I want to make a difference, and that is bridging the gap between um, commercial hunting and conservation and recreational hunting. So you've got you got two conflicts. You know, conservation they want to they want to remove species that are harmful to the environment to whatever extent they might be. And then hunters want to enhance their environment so much that they, you know, they can walk out the door and shoot a deer at times. So there's a big conflict there. And then with with topics like 1080, uh, the the tar cull, things like that, there's such the stench between hunters and mm. conservation. Like I, I I I cringe when I walk into a dock hut and I see you know f dock or or you know and all these insults. But there's nowhere else in the world where you can go out, spend 30 seconds on the internet, get a permit go and shoot as many or whatever you want on mm-hmm. conservation land at no cost uh, with maintained tracks, with these backcountry huts. And it's it's such a privilege. Although there's things that we don't disagree on at times, you have to think about how privileged we are and spend more time appreciating those privileges mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of not appreciating what else yep. goes on. And so because I see a lot of background to Doc's logic or a lot of the benefits that they gain from some things, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place, but I've got no choice. It's what I've. Yeah, that's that's where, where I am, and yeah. so I would love to see a little bit more appreciation from both sides. Where conservation do value hunters, and and not just their efforts on the hill, but you know the whole hunting. Their opinion. Yeah, their whole their whole hunting opinion, and and what the value of a game animal is, and same with hunters to conservation that they are there to try and look after the land, and the people that I met, they all do their best. Mm-hmm. And and with the right intentions, and there's there's always going to be mistakes, but that's out of my control. But I just I I'd like to see a better relationship between hunters and conservationists. Um, I'm stuck in the middle. I, I, if you ask me to pick sides, I'd say neither because yep. I've got no choice. But well, we we as hunters here in New Zealand uh, probably don't appreciate what it is we have, and, and based mm. on the fact that like we've got amazing areas and we've got lots of species, but the likes of my good friends in Canada and stuff. They may get to do a a, a successful hunt a year. May yeah. get to it's shoot right. a animal, and and the offset of that is how resourceful they are with that animal. Mm. You know, like I know we talked about when there's an abundance, maybe the need not to, 
But versus this, when they draw that tag and they get to do that whitetail hunt, you can be sure they are going to take every little bit of that because that's yeah. really, and you know we we are so far from that. Like our argument is that we can't go out and get ten deer a year. That's right. Like it's it's, it's the complete other extreme. Mm. But it is definitely a case of needing to be able to communicate between the two, between yeah. hunters and conservationists. Yeah, and and being able to listen because mm-hmm. that's probably what's missing at the moment. We sort of very willing to say. <laughs> yeah, but you know, not a lot of listening. But um, yeah, and, and you, like you said, you just look at other people who are in a different position. Like Australia's national parks, you know, there's no huts, there's no firearms whatsoever, and the government culling them. You know, it's the complete opposite here. The, the world would turn upside down in New oh, Zealand hunting yeah, if it went that way. But if if you actually look at the history, um, you know, doc do when they when they get the opportunities, they do what they can. Mm-hmm. to allow hunting to happen and to kind of preserve it. They, they, there's herds of special interests and things like deer repellent. I know they're only compromises, but at least they're looking out for hunters. It's and, a, and it's a growing thing. So Yeah, and at least the consideration's there. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So instead of saying um, FDOC, think about working with them. You know, mm-hmm. Contact someone, go to the local office, or be part of an organisation that work alongside them because that's the only way your views might you know, might get seen. Yep. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think one thing, and I've, I know I've raised it, earlier a few podcasts ago but one thing that really disappoints me and one thing that we really should not be doing is threatening employees mm. of these organizations or any like it's so poor these yeah. people that are out there on the ground doing this work are typically doing it because they love the animals love new zealand love the environment and i you know the stories of wheel nuts getting undone and <laughs> like it is so poor like it is distasteful as a human yeah let, let alone your hunting interest or whatever like and I, it, where it sits with me, and I've probably said this, I'm probably repeating, but like as an 18-year-old, and it's not the path I took, but I would have probably taken a path with Doc just to be on, like a little bit like you, being out in the outdoors, potentially killing something, mm. hunting something. And then to think that somebody might undo my wheel nuts because that was my mm. passion. Like, what the hell, New Zealand? Yeah. Like, that is so poor. And, you know, I know some of these people and, you know, they they lock their doors when they're home at night and they... They they actually sometimes have a lot of fear about mm. what they're doing, but because yeah. they're passionate for conservation and they, you know, that's the way they are. So it is sad. But those people, they just need a. They've got the passion, obviously, to take those <laughs> risks. Just put it in the right place. You know, work with, work with the Tar Liaison Group or work with the NZDA or someone. Use your passion else. You know, or use that passion elsewhere through a different channel because yeah. you can make a difference. It's all about communication. So. Um, yeah, it's sad that there's times like that, but at the same time, there's always going to be these people. Extremists. These extremists. Yeah. Like I said, there's always a minority that disagree to every action's a reaction, and um, I suppose people just have to prepare for that. Bit of a somber way to end the podcast, but... Well, hey, I shot a voice. big stag this week. Oh, sweet. Well, that's a good, that's a good finish. That's <laughs> yeah. a good finish. Hard hard velvet. Yeah, I've actually... Yeah. Um, for it's, it's the first time I've actually gone searching for, for stags and hard velvet. Um, and I've been on two hunts, and one of them I've seen a massive stag, the biggest stag I've seen on, on conservation land, but it was too soft, and I'll put pictures up at some stage, but it was 14 plus. So um, that sucked. I didn't go back to look for it. I wasn't that eager anyway. Yeah, i seen another couple of stags with great potential. One was hard, and then um, a couple of 12s, and then i just seen this, this big 10, and um, he's mature, and everything worked well. I thought, I'm happy with that. And so, yeah, I, I took a nice stag. And it's the first, like I said, the first one I've taken in half velvet because I have never actually gone out of my way to do it or I've been mm. too busy otherwise. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy. And it's, cool. it's in the back of the ute and it's going to go sit on the wall somewhere. So Cool. Yeah, awesome. No, that's good.
it's good good to see that you're out in the hill mm. using your holidays to go hunting <laughs> it doesn't happen that often <laughs> <laughs> no that's good no it's been a really good chat Jordan I thank you for your time no worries hey thanks for having me no worries man cheers g'day thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast there are a number of ways you can connect with myself Matthew Gibson or my partner in crime Curran Island at The Educated Hunter and the hub for all of this is our website theeducatedhunter.com our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world and lastly you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode other than that thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.